I think we're all here in this practice because we have two kinds of experiences. We've had experiences that have let us know that life is inevitably challenging. We don't know what to expect next. And I think we've also had experiences of knowing that in the middle of a life inevitably challenging, it's possible to be peaceful. And that really what we look for in practice is a way to touch that truth of peace enough to sustain us in our dealing with the challenges, big and small, day to day, so we can stay present and awake. We'll sit two or three more minutes. Just rest in peaceful mind. Don't do anything at all.
I haven't ever asked people to do that particular meditation in this kind of a group. So I'm not sure about how you feel about talking about it. It's an interesting, it was, um, it's a thing, it's an idea that seems so true to me that we all of us have, whether we know it or not, some degree of faith that peace is possible based on our own personal experience somewhat related to the way in which psychotherapists become psychotherapists. Nobody does it because it's, I don't think, because they read about it in a college course catalog. <laughs> I think everybody, I'd be surprised, you know, if someone said, you know, I made a decision when I was 14 years old, I'm going to be a therapist. Or if, unless they hadn't been in therapy. Or a zoologist, maybe, but um, but I think that decision, I'm going to be present to someone else's pain, comes from having had someone else be present to our pain, mostly, and from the conviction that it's possible to heal from pain. Do you think so? What do you think? A lot of therapists out there. You think, anybody thinks otherwise, how about that? Yeah. Somewhere or somewhere has to come some sense of hope that it could be otherwise. So I'm completely open to where it might come from. The story about the Buddha uh, that people don't tell a lot is that he had presumably a profound meditation experience when he was five years old. Do you know that story? that he was sitting under a cherry blossom tree, I think, and that suddenly and quite spontaneously his mind was enraptured in uh, a way that was filled with bliss, quite spontaneously. And it's often just noted that, you know, first of all, all of the Buddha stories are legends anyway, and uh, or they're legends in the sense that they were told for 500 years before people wrote them down. So whether it, they were exactly portrayals of what happened to him or they're allegories about a particular way of coming to a certain kind of understanding, that's one of the little stories that's told, that at five years old he suddenly was spontaneously enraptured and had a sense of complete bliss. But I think that for everyone for whom there's a sense of hope, that hope has to be connected to some internalized sense of what feeling good feels like. Otherwise, we wouldn't know that there was another way to be. We wouldn't know that this is distress. 
unless there was some uh, reference point of non-distress. Is that not true? I think it is. Maybe certain things we take on um, Well, here, here's a story out of my own meditation experience. When I went to my first retreat, I didn't go because uh, um, I didn't go because I thought I was going to get cured of my pain or that my I went because it was 1977 and everybody was going on meditation retreats, that's why. And uh, I had very little clue of uh, what was in fact supposed to happen or going to happen or uh, I thought it was just an exotic thing to do you know uh, it was a pretty exotic thing to do go off without any of my family or nobody I knew and so I did it um, and the, the first extended retreat that I did was was um, two weeks it was a long retreat to do in the beginning and I didn't have really uh, some tremendous state of bliss come over me like the Buddha with his blossom tree. Mostly I was in tremendous pain and had a headache for a lot of it. And my body hurt, which was really surprising. So I was doing a lot of yoga at the time. But at that time, I was so impressed with what my teachers said. I just loved what they said. They, um, the message that peace was possible was so comforting to me, even before I felt any sense of personal peace. Uh, there were three on that first retreat. Uh, Jacqueline Schwartz, who now teaches uh, independently in Texas, Richard Barsky, who has recently died, and Jack Cornfield. Um, and they talked about that they, you know, they taught the same things that we teach here now. That the Buddha taught that life is inevitably challenging. That we make the challenges worse by struggling with what we can't change, which is the second noble truth. And that the third noble truth is that peace is possible in this very life with this body and these stories. Not that we stop trying to make things work out in the way that we want. It wasn't calling for a life of passivity. It was calling for a life of really industry and engagement with an open heart. You do the best that you can, and you don't fight with what you get. It's like so simple when you think about it. It's like completely common sense, and it's so uncommon to keep it in there all the time. We keep on struggling to make it different when it isn't going to be different. And to have the heart to say, you know, this isn't going to be different. Somebody once said, um, an early teacher of mine, uh, that the, I suppose in, in response to the question of what is enlightenment, that's the ability to say and really mean it when something bad happens to you. This isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. Um, So, uh, I'll, uh, well, let me finish that, that particular trend of thought. In the beginning, then, uh, the truth is, I'm not so sure that I had a personal 
validation of the fact that I could think about my whole life and not and be okay with it. I think that I think I, I think I probably did. I think I did it via their faith. I think that there's a way in which when other people when one has a when I have a sense that I here start the sentence again Sylvia I had the sense when my teachers taught that their conviction that peace is possible came out of their experience that peace is possible I think what I did was I borrowed their experience. I think that's what happens with therapists. That when you're not terribly startled or completely dismayed by what people tell you, that what gets conveyed is that getting better is a possibility, healing is a possibility. You hold that space for them without saying that to them. I think my teachers held that space for me. And then increasingly over time, I found myself validating in myself, oh, look at that, there's a heart space possible where I can remember my whole life and what's going on here and there and you know, what went on and what was the story of my family and what is the story of my family, and I'm okay with it. Not that I forgot what's pleasing and not pleasing, I've been a little bit taken aback with that uh, teaching that says, um, it's a bumper sticker that says, never too late to have a happy childhood. I think, yes, it is. You know, it is. If you didn't, you didn't. Uh, you know, and it's changing, the, it's changing the, the truth if you make it something else. I think what's, what's possible is to be able to say, you know what? I didn't have a happy childhood. And here I am now, but it's, you know, now is not then, now is now. It's a huge piece of work to be able to do that, to not have that truth color the whole of your life with bitterness. That's maybe really one of the biggest ways in which what the Buddha taught overlaps on being a therapist. We get very frightened when, it's, when our experience is difficult and to have it not leak out. I'll tell you a story. Um, I think this is a good story to tell. It's not my story, I, except I was there. I was uh, uh, taking a train, I was back on the East Coast teaching and um, taking a train from somewhere in Massachusetts down to uh, Washington, D.C., I think, or Philadelphia, it doesn't matter. And I got on the train and there was an elderly couple, elderly means older than I am, uh, sitting in the back of the train holding hands, man and a woman, holding hands, riding, and just holding, not talking to each other, just riding along. And So I pass them and I go and I sit down and uh, I get up and go to the bathroom, they're still sitting, and I come back, and they're still sitting, and, you know, it's a long trip, so I go back and forth, I get up to stretch, they're still sitting, mostly not talking. And so by and by, I stopped to talk to them, where are they going, are they going home, are they going there? Anyway, they were going to either Washington or Philadelphia to have some um, 
surgery that he needed. They live in a small town. He needed some very kind of particular complicated surgery that they had an expert in wherever it was that they were going. Um, so I'd constructed this whole story about, oh, they must be married 50 years, 55 years, and probably wonderful to hear about that. So on one of these trips, they're telling me the story about the eye surgery. I said, um, how long have you been married? Just thinking they'll have a lot of pleasure to tell me. And uh, the woman has been doing all the talking. This man is just sitting. He looked happy that she was doing all the talking for them. And she said, oh, we're not married. We just live together. <laughs> and uh, so we've been together about three years. And um, so, so much for that first story that I made up about them. See, they make up stories about everybody that don't begin to be true. So um, we're not married. We just live together. And then his wife had died several years before. He'd had a bunch of children, raised them up. And... Uh, she said, and she told me about her life. She had married somewhat later and uh, had also several, three or four children. She said, um, and uh, we raised them up, my husband and I. She said, we did a good job. They were all raised up, she said. And then uh, three years ago, what do you know, one day I came home and there was a note from him. I'm gone. Just left, up and left, just like that. She said, I was enraged. I was furious. So I'm trying to think of what do you say after that. <laughs> so I, I tried to think of an empathic thing to say. So I said, uh, you know, I imagined, you know, she said, after 44 four years, he left me. And I thought, oh, must have been such a difficult 44 years. You know, I said, uh, must have been really hard, those 44 years. And she, you know, she said, no. She said, it's the best 44 years of my life. <laughs> she said, we had a really good time. We were having a good time. We raised up our children. We had nice children. They, and they have good families. Um, and looked at me, and she said, uh, you know, like, well, how could I have asked the question? I said, well, you know, uh, sometimes, uh, it, uh, oh, I guess what happened is that they asked me then, what do you do? What do you do? What's your work? So I said, uh, well, I, um, I teach, and I, I didn't feel like starting in with the Buddhism on the train standing. I said, I teach, and I teach about having a good attitude in, in life. Because that's really what this is about, having a good attitude. So I said, I teach about having a good attitude in life, and sometimes I write about it, and I write stories, and I, I, I might write your story someday. And uh, she said, well, what would you write about me? I said, well, about your good attitude. She said, what good attitude? I told you I was furious. So, uh, <laughs> so getting more and more backed up here. <laughs> because it hadn't even occurred to her that she had a... I said, well, you know, some people it might happen that they would... You said, you know... <laughs> I said, I noticed that you said you were furious. Some people, they would be furious, and it would color, the furiousness would color their recollection of everything that had come before. She thought about that. And she said, but that's not the truth. She said, the truth is, it was the best 44 years of my life. 
So the question of really how to be able to hold the truth of your life in a wide enough lens that you could be startled or challenged or even enraged, infuriated, grief-stricken, and not have any particular one of those problematic, afflictive emotions so color the whole of your life that you can't continue, really. And the truth is, I don't think it's all from insight and wisdom. I, I, I really want to put a caveat on that. I think that some people are naturally more resilient than others. I think that's true. People come through hair-raising experiences, get off a plane that lands on fire and whatever, and fly the next day. You know, <laughs> They just do. And other people can't drive by an airport for the whole rest of their life. You know, it's just, it's a different, the people have different physiologies. That's really true. Also, people have different families that teach them different stratagems about how to deal with the difficulties in their life. Some families really are more expansive, philosophical. You know, this is life, what can you do? and others not. And I think there's a certain amount of uh, personal wisdom um, experience that um, in the long run I think maybe is, I don't know, was for me the important thing. To discover that it is possible to be in a mind state, in a heart state, where you can purposely bring up the difficulties of your life now or then and find that you are right with them. In essence, that you forgive them. You don't change them, but you forgive them. Say, this is the way it was, or this is the way it is. It cannot be another way. If I try to make it another way, first of all, it isn't going to, it's just what it is. And I'll have tension in my mind. You know, but every time I say that, it, sound, it comes out sounding so ridiculously mundane. Um, but it's ridiculously mundane. It is what it is. That's it. You know, because of this, then that. People are the way they are because of every single thing. Things fall out the way they do because of everything. Not because of me or in spite of me. A friend of mine is uh, uh, learning to be a mindfulness teacher. She was on the East Coast and was teaching more and more and came out here to sit at uh, Spirit Rock a couple months ago. Sat for a month, I think, and then uh, on the day that she finished came to stay with me uh, at my home up in Sonoma County for a couple of days before she went home. And I picked her up at the bus, and she was all excited about her experience. And uh, she, exp- she described to me some particular experience on some certain day where she said, suddenly I got it, that things are just the way they are. And you, know, you have to really know what the other person means, because otherwise, out of context, it's a nothing thing to say. Of course things are just what they are. Well, you know. Uh, 
But there's a way in which, if you, you know, if I, I know her well, you know, so we feel each other. When somebody says, you know, that's just the way it is, and you get it, that they profoundly get it, that it's just the way it is. It's not because of me, it's not in spite of me, it's not a reward or a punishment, it's just the way it is. And the, uh, it, it so moves it to the only possible response in terms of if you want to be peaceful is to say it's just the way it is. So I said, well, you know, it's wonderful that you know this. I said you should, uh, it, it had come around some particular story. She'd been preoccupied with some story about her daughter and this and that, and why hadn't she done it this way and she did it the other way and that. And the mind is in a knot for a certain amount of time. And the whole time that the mind is in the knot and struggling, you're in pain because that's what suffering is. And she said, one day I just realized it's just what it is. It's out of my hands, you know. And you just do it. And you can feel the energy that just goes out of that knot. Like the knot unties. And you say, that's it. That's the way it is. I said, well, you should tell that story now that you're beginning to teach. She said, well, you know, it's just my story. People have others. But it isn't the story. Everybody's got their own knot. But when I tell you that story, and it isn't my knot, it's her knot, and you don't even know what the knot's about, don't you get it about the knot that unties? Who here could say, I have, an experience. I have had personally in my heart the experience of not untying? <laughs> there. Now, all of a sudden, and the situation is the same. Nothing changed except the knot untied. Yeah. Hmm? I don't. Do you want to tell me what's the name of it? Knots. Knots. R.D. Lang. R.D. Lang, the British psychologist. No, I don't know about that. You read it 20 times. I should at least go and look at it once. <laughs> no, but I... Well, I think it'll be very helpful for me to look at because I think a lot these days about the way in which principally the knot reties itself in me is when I have not forgiven someone or something <laughs> for doing something in a certain way. Because it's another way of thinking, if only, if only they had X, or if only they had Y, or if only, but they didn't. So it's an extra, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mind maneuver. It's amazing to think that the mind of its own self goes around tying knots. You know, everybody wants, it's wonderful to listen to the Dalai Lama teaching because here he comes and he says, everybody wants to be happy. They do, I believe that. Everybody wants to be happy. I believe that that's true. And still, the mind, not out of perversity and not out of naughtiness, out of bad habits, actually, out of bad habits, keeps on tying itself in knots. And that maybe one way of thinking about the whole of practice 
is that it's about trying to untie the knot. Sometimes you untie this one, another one ties. It, uh, it's a continual knot. And so I'm not entirely sure that there isn't a tremendous element of grace involved. Intention to untie the knots, determination to untie the knots, patience with the knots untying, energy. If you're, if you, if you're following those, you, you'll know that I'm listing the paramitas, the qualities of a, um, of a awakened mind, according to the Buddhist let me see if they all work. They should. They should be all not untires. I would love it to have this come true. Let's see. Uh, generosity, morality, renunciation, uh, energy, wisdom, determination, patience. Truthfulness, loving kindness, uh, equanimity. They should all be not untires. Telling the truth certainly unties a knot. Here the woman in that train told me they were the best 44 years of my life. I was furious at the end, but they were the best 45 years of my life. Um, a lot of times I think we have, I, I, never mind we, I have the habit of not telling the truth, not in a way, uh, to myself, not even a way of to, to somebody else, out of habit. Um, I, I, I've been watching it uh, recently because I caught myself recently on my on route from someplace to someplace else, and I'd had a million things to do that day, or many things to do that day. That's in truthfulness. Many things to do. <laughs> and rushing from one to the next, doing them. And rushing yet to another appointment or another class or another something. And hearing myself say to myself, oh, I'm so tired. And I thought to myself, no, you're not. <laughs> you know? You're really all charged up. You're having a good time. It's a good day. You know? <laughs> That's such a bad habit, you know. I think I come from probably on some level, you know, some, I, mean, I don't even put it on my parents, they're long gone. Somewhere in me is a program that complains, says, ah, oh, tired. But, you know, it's not true. <laughs> so truthfulness, and, and if I told myself, oh, I'm so tired, by the time I got to wherever I was going, I'd probably be demoralized and convinced that I was tired and maybe not do a good job because I'd be convinced I was tired. Say, what's actually true? I'm not tired. I just did a lot of things. That's true. Truthfulness unties knots. Um, energy is certainly necessary to untie knots because otherwise we get... Um, I think what, what has to happen for the knot to untie is there has to be a certain amount of clarity in the mind, which means it has to have a certain amount of energy in it, otherwise it fogs. Um, it's been very clear to me that uh, when I see myself tying myself in a knot of a habit, that it isn't seeing enough that, uh, that drops it. Sometimes you get caught in a habit 
But for one reason or another, you just can't put down. And then if there, there, there are two courses I, I was talking about a little earlier today. One of them is skillful and the other one is unskillful. The unskillful one is they give myself a bad time for the fact that I can't put it down. That's unskillful. Ties are not tighter. It's the sort of thing where I say to myself, if you were really a spiritual person, Sylvia, you'd be able to get over this annoyance or whatever. That's not true. I mean, A has nothing to do with B. You know, it's a, just, it's a story that spiritual people don't get annoyed. Spiritual people get everything. Or I don't even know what a spiritual person is. You know, the, I suppose we could have a definition of a spiritual person as a person who never got annoyed, but then I'm not it because I get annoyed. But, but we have certain things. That we set it up. We make a rule. Spiritual people don't get annoyed. And then we annoy ourselves that we're annoyed. So I tie myself more in a knot. If I see myself tying myself more in a knot and don't give myself a bad time about it, as a matter of fact, if I'm kind to myself, if I'm compassionate, if I say to myself, boy, you're in pain, then it's likely that I'll ease up a little bit on myself, take a breath, something. If I stop really telling myself the story about how not good I am, the knot might untie by itself. You do something else. You breathe for a while. So energy, determination. Oh, that was the that was the that was the determination meditation that we did before. I've been thinking about that and just recently developing it. That one about try to remember a time when you were just fine. Did that work for you? Mm-hmm. Did you remember something? Because I have a sense that that's the piece that connects us to our own sense of hope. That if one second in our life we felt it's okay, that's enough for us to have known that okay is, our, is a possibility in this life. And... Hmm? Well, I'm not even sure that I can choose to be in that space. Because sometimes I think that, you know, I'll, I'll remember the time that I was so... My, the first time I tested that, I think, uh, I discovered I was just feeling so peaceful in my heart. I was in the middle of a meditation retreat, and I thought, I'm going to give myself a peacefulness test now. I'm going to think about my, uh, my uh, daughter, my daughter who was then... 14, I guess, uh, 15, maybe, traveling with my father in Mexico, who uh, had developed asthma not long before. And it was a, and she had some serious bouts with it, and I was worried about it. And so, especially when she was gone in another country, and I would think, um, I wonder what's going to happen with that asthma. Is it going to get worse? Or, um, so usually the thought about the, where is she, is she okay, did she take her asthma medicine with her, make me a little frightened. So that was the test. I was feeling so peaceful. I said, okay, now I'm going to have the, uh, the thought about Emily and the asthma and see what happens. <laughs> and you could think the thought, and you think the thought, and you realize, I love her so much. She probably took the medicine with her. They have clinics in Mexico. They have doctors in Mexico. My father is there. 
should probably be all right. It's probably fine. And you watch that you can give yourself an equanimity test. You can give yourself a test. This love relationship isn't working anymore. I feel bad about it, but it's what's true. Every once in a while, you get to be able to give yourself a test. It's like taking your temperature. Yeah, I'm, I'm really all right. If there were times in your life, I mean, because there have been times in everybody's life when they're quite happy, but then you say, well, I can't be that happy again because I'm, I don't have that same constellation of happiness things. But it's not a question of happy. It's a question of uh, expansive heart. Really, equanimity is a, is, a, is a question of spaciousness of heart. You can say, it's just okay how it is. I like it or I don't like it. I'm pleased with it or I'm not pleased with it. That's really, the, for me, the, the great insight is to be able to say, can be happy without being pleased. It's a, it's actually, happy isn't such a good word. Contented. Contented. Satisfied. Satisfied. Search the whole world. There's nothing you'll find. There's not, one, nothing, something, nothing more rare. There's one thing you'll find. There's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. Um, is that Rolling Stones? Or, I think I think it is. It's a long, long time ago. But nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. It's hard to just get the mind to sit down and say, "Okay." Just, it's okay. It's enough. It's okay. I'm satisfied. So that's the equanimity test. Can you hold, not can you forget your life, can you get it all perfect, can you now have a happy childhood, can nobody have asthma? Everybody's got everything. If not this, that. That's really the equanimity meditation. All individuals are heir to their own karma. It's such a complicated phrase to say, when I first heard it, didn't like it at all. It sounded like tough luck, you know, whatever you've got, you know, it's yours. And it doesn't, doesn't that sound very callous? Like whatever, you made your bed, you lie in it or something like that. It doesn't mean that at all. It means I am short because all of my parents and grandparents were short all the way back to whenever, because, you know, for whatever reasons, <coughs> genetics or poverty or whatever, you know, that, that everything has a lawful cause. Not a, not a purposeful one. It's not that I deserve it or don't deserve it. Everything is lawfully caused. That's what karma means. You see, every individual is heir to their own karma. It means just the confluence of circumstances that happened since the beginning of time are all responsible for what's happening now. It means nobody's guilty. It means that really everybody is forgivable. They couldn't have been otherwise, anybody. It doesn't mean everybody's likable, but forgivable. It's a huge. Sometimes, on, 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 uh, especially around the times of uh, of uh, major national elections on Wednesday mornings, we do loving kindness. <laughs> People particularly <laughs> for years after that, people try to hold in their hearts those political figures. <laughs> 
whom we find unforgivable. <laughs> but the, 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 the clue in that is not so that you'll be a saint, but so you'll be comfortable. It's so uncomfortable to live with a mad heart, isn't it? I mean, it's not for the benefit of the other person, really. For the benefit of yourself. I mean, people who... <laughs> I can't make any political statements. Here, so <laughs> I think it is too late to have a happy childhood and too late to have the elections again and too late to take back anything. But it's not too late to have this moment wisely. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, actually, in fact, one of the things I think about is that um, the Dalai Lama is probably as well known internationally and esteemed as an icon of peacefulness because of that. You know, that people who never heard of the Buddha or don't know anything about Buddhism uh, recognize the face of the Dalai Lama these days. I think that. I, 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 I see the face of the Dalai Lama now on billboards advertising everything, in the, you know, in the world, you know. Not meditation retreats. It's kind of like if you put up, well, they're just a few, like, international symbols, like the Coca-Cola script or the Mickey Mouse, or either, that are internationally recognizable, and His Holiness is getting right up there with an internationally recognized face. And I don't think it's because people know something about the Buddha particularly, but they know that here's a person who steadfastly and resolutely has been determined to operate out of a peaceful and loving heart, despite everything that has happened to him and to Tibet and to Tibetan Buddhism. And I think that people know that. I think they get that. And they think that somehow... He represents for them, he represents for me, as for you probably, as we each do for each other, the possibility that you can do this life not mad. That's what everybody wants to do. Imagine, to do this life not mad. Um, somebody said, one, I, I don't know who this is now, this is an apocryphal story probably, who even knows if there was a true person. But, one of my teachers telling a story about some um, teacher, I think it was in the Zen tradition because it was about her death utterance. And in the Zen tradition, they have a very uh, particular keen interest in death utterances. Like in your very last breath, you say the uh, culmination of your understanding. This woman is supposed to have died saying, thank you very much, I have no complaints. And it's so touching. I, you know, <laughs> it's very touching, isn't it? Uh, every day, I, I'm glad to teach it because every day, I, I, in the past I have taught that and said I'm so touched by it because I still have so many complaints. <laughs> but I'm really working hard on not having complaints 
uh, I'm, I'm even changing whether my complaints are uh, holy complaints, like I'd really like to make the world more equitable in the way people live. But maybe that's not a complaint. Maybe that's a, um, um, what would you call it? Let's, let's, let's redeem it. What is it? Oh, it's a wish. There you go. That's not a complaint. Thank you very much. I've redeemed that. So now I can say that, maybe. <laughs> I'll have to check out whether I can really honestly say it. But I'd like to be able to say, thank you very much. I have no complaints. Because complaining is extra. It's extremely unwise. It doesn't make any sense to complain. It doesn't make anything better. I mean, I mean, wishing and acting and doing things. I mean, showing up. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, going back to what you said earlier, Sylvia, about the real question for me, how to live well every day. I spent um, two years with my very close family and my mother who died of cancer. And um, my own priority in life is, is, is very, very clear to me. It's the joy. And so I'm very clear about that in the amount of time it takes and the finances and the thirteen years so far down my devotion. But I have such a panic, especially since my mother died every day, such a panic and of sadness. Every day that passes, there's so much more I wanted to do in that day. Should I spend more time sitting? Should I spend more time with my father? Should I spend more time with my little sister? And I'm a teacher, so you know what, an elementary teacher, you know what kind of time that takes up. And again, my main priority are my own two daughters. And I just feel this panic every day and, and anger about how quickly, just how quickly this is going. And I don't, and I don't, and that, that, that's really an action, smiling. Mm -hmm. And that's my question, how to, how to express my care for all of the children that I feel responsible for and for my family who have been grieving and I just I just I, I just feel overwhelmed. I'm very touched by your question. What do you mean? When? You know, I just wanted to one with Jack's book, um, The Laundry Book. You know, the title I love so much because he, to me, the laundry is my life. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I, I live for these things. I live for carpools. Mm -hmm. I live to do my family's laundry. <laughs> it's like my greatest. Mm -hmm. I'm so blessed every day to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. I, 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 we talk about, by the way, about his title. We talk about because we all feel that. And uh, and I was in a group of uh, friends last week with Jack talking about if you write another book, we'll just call it More Laundry. <laughs> 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 or uh, it's all laundry. <laughs> you know what, Len? Uh, 
I'm very happy. I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm pleased that you asked that question. And I, instead of attempting a straight-out answer, which would presume, because I don't know, I think I want to talk around it obliquely and say, my sense as you talk is that that's a kind of urgency. That awareness is what, um, what the Buddha was talking about when he said, we have no idea of the urgency of the task of, and the shortness of time that we have to love as fully as we can, to address as much as we can the pain of the world, the shortness of the time that we have to do it. He, he had some alarming metaphors for it. He said, we ought to practice as if our hair is on fire. I actually don't find that alarming. I, it, it is, in a sense, on fire. Um, I think that that kind of sense of urgency that, that I feel in your question is part of, the, part of that insight of how fast it all goes. You know, um, I went to get, uh, I went to register for my uh, Medicare card this month because I'm going to be 65 in a couple of weeks. I signed that that Social Security card yesterday, looks like to me. I recognize that very young baby handwriting that, you know, I don't even write like that anymore, but I recognize it. And it seems like yesterday that I signed that Social Security card. And here I'm passing it back to them, and they're going to trade it for a Medicare card. I can't believe, where did that happen? Like in a minute. Like I turned around to blow my nose or something, came back, and the life passed. It's extremely short. I think that one of the hopes of paying attention and of developing a practice that somehow cultivate some amount of calm, is that we'll be able to look at that urgency and the amount of work that needs to get done outside and in our own hearts and how swiftly the life goes by. And that it will in some way inspire us and not frighten us. That, um, I remember all the stories that I heard when I began to practice about the tortoise that surfaces. Do you know those stories about that there's a tortoise, a great giant tortoise that swims around under the oceans of the world, and just one of them. And once every hundred years he sticks his head up through the ocean. And that there's a, a ring like a life buoy that's floating around on the surface of all the seven seas. And what are the possibilities that when that tortoise sticks his head up, it's going to be in that particular buoy? And the, the, the story is told around, it's meant to say, the same possibilities, the same odds of the tortoise sticking his head up through that buoy, it's the same odds as having a human birth, that, that we come together as this particular person 
in this particular life is it it's a it's actually less rare more rare than that tortoise because this is the only time that I'm going to come together as this and you're going to come together as that Glenn with your particular constellation I think it's a once in the whole of eternity you're going to get to be Gwen and I'm going to get to be Sylvia and anybody's going to your two daughters will be who they are. And when we feel that, it makes everything so incredibly sacred. You know? Who would we ever get mad at or rebuke or do something badly to? You know? It's a line in the Dhammapada that says, whoever really gets it about impermanence ceases to be contentious. You know? How could you be contentious? It's so precious, holy, this brief incarnation. How to do it and not be afraid of it, that we have this brief time. How to not be um, terrified into um, not knowing how to act or what should I do. Um, I think for each of us, and from moment to moment, it works out differently. But I think there are the two awarenesses. One is that it's all on fire. That's the one of that's the one awareness. The other is that it's all amazing. You know that that if uh, if we look out the window, if I look out the window where I live uh, this time of year, these last few weeks, there've been uh, quail hatching. There's a lot of quail right where I live out in the country. And there are different families of quail that go by. And again, I can tell that the different families because they each hatch on different days and the quail are all different sizes. But baby quail are really amazing. They're quite, you know, they come out knowing how to peck and find food. And their parents lead them around. They have one in the front, one in the back, and a whole train of ten little quail running along. <laughs> then another train of quail run along. And I, as I look out, and I, you, they suddenly run into my vision, there's a way in which your heart picks up, you know, that you suddenly see something like that. My cousin had a baby in uh, Sonoma a couple of weeks ago. So I stopped by the hospital on the very day the baby was born. And I had to pass down, uh, from uh, the matter of where elevators were, where I got out until I got to the room where the cousin was, I passed by people in very clearly difficult, probably terminally ill circumstances, people with oxygen. You can tell where people are really sick and the people around the beds are sitting and looking really sad. And I go through that and you look in the rooms and you see a whole different story of suffering in every single room. And then I come to the cousin and his wife and this baby that's about to start a whole new life. And when I left their room, I realized that my heart had picked up just from that, you know, that somehow these folks, that's what's happening, they're passing. These folks, just the next turn of the century with any good fortune, this baby might be there at the, you know, at the end of this century. And I think there are moments where if we're really paying attention, the heart gets picked up and you say, it's an amazing story. Not, 
it's not my story or your story, it's the story that this is happening seems so amazing. Not what's happening. What's happening is overwhelming, but that it's happening. It's really like magic that it's happening, isn't it? Think about it. I mean, fundamentally, there's a rock hanging in the middle of space, you know? And it just wobbled so that now we have a little bit less light every day. I don't think it wobbled, it tilted. (laughs) It didn't wobble, but the tilt of the earth as it rotates. I've been trying to describe this to my grandchildren. The tilt of the earth as it rotates causes us to have now just a little bit less sun every day. We're moving a little bit darker every day, and then it'll come all the way around the edge of dark, and it'll get light again. You know, quite apart from anything that I want or don't want to have happen. That's so amazing to be part of that and to have a, a human heart, you know. What seems to me really even more incredible than the fact that the earth is going to predictably come back, more light, less light, more light, less light, and we will be gone after however many, you know, I hope 60, 70, 80, 90 years, however long we get, and we'll be gone. Given all of that, it seems to me so amazing that we have the capacity to love. Yeah? It seems to be more amazing than gravity. You know, gravity doesn't seem so amazing. Gravity, you know, that's just gravity. But that, that, that human beings have affective bonds that cause them to connect to people and feel compassion that you do, Gwen, that you care. Caring is such an amazing commodity, you know? Think about it. I think about it with the quail, you know? I think to myself, I look at the quail and I think they're so cute, and I think, I wonder if these quail are looking at their quail and thinking, my quail are cuter than those those quail over there. (laughs) We always think our children are cuter than everybody else's to the quail, you know? Those kind of affective bonds seem to me so amazing, or... One of our people dies, we feel so terrible, you know, that human beings have hearts with affect and care. Seemed to me so amazing. That's what the Buddha meant about the precious human birth, that we get to have hearts of care, we get to be able to choose volitional response. I think about it, it's an amazing thing for human beings Human beings have the ability to feel like doing something and not do it, you know? Uh, uniquely among animals. We, we, are, we are certainly motivated by instinctual drives, but we have the possibility of thinking something over and saying, you know what, wouldn't be good for me, wouldn't be good for them, I won't do it. That's an amazing developmental skill that human beings have, which we have on behalf of other people. That we, that we care about them. Caring is amazing. I think when we get that, it sustains us. Junie, you're back. You were going to say something, June? Yeah. I was actually thinking about what you're doing here. How important is it to remember that everything passes? I think I haven't been quite the same place when there's a similar and lots of others. After a while, the older you get, you look back and you realize that everything gets better, it makes it worse, it's better, but it all passes and changes. 
had participated in Africa Times of raising children and all you did, you'll never get through it. I think that 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 particular thing. I think about. It, I was thinking about it yesterday, about the next to the last sentence that the Buddha said before he died was transient. Are all conditioned things? Everything passes. I, the, the last sentence that he said was, um, strive on with diligence, you know, carry on, you can do it. Um, it actually, my, one of my friends who's a Pali scholar says a better translation of that, that sounds so military, strive on with diligence. Uh, the friend of mine who's a Pali scholar says a better translation would be, move with sureness into this, into every moment. I like that better. Um, but I like to think that that, that uh, next to the last sentence, if it was really the last teaching sentence that he gave, must be the crux of all teaching, that it's very important to know that nothing lasts. It first of all makes it possible to stay with difficult moments, and it also causes, it calls us to attention so that we don't miss the in-between moments. Now spend time waiting for you know, three weeks from Monday, I'm going to go on holiday, and then it will be good. Don't know if I'm going to be around three weeks from Monday. Only know about now. At first, I don't know if it'll be good. I might go on a holiday, and the whole thing might be a mess. If a friend who went on holiday and tripped over a luggage cart that, that started to roll away and broke her leg and ends up in a rehab hospital. So you don't know. She's getting better, but you don't know what's going to happen. So you never know what's going to happen. That really, maybe we should almost end on that and sit some more. I want us to do a loving-kindness meditation. Miriam. Well, I just wanted to say we've been talking about being in the present and paying attention and being in the moment. And sometimes those moments are pure joy, but sometimes they're pure pain. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to step aside from that deep, utter pain, to say this is going to pass. Mm-hmm. Now, I, actually, Miriam, I think that's a very important question. I think that it is not, that, the, that we are not called to step aside from the deep, utter pain. I think we are called upon to stay right in the middle of it. Uh, and that we are sustained, at, I, again, I, I am sustained in my ability to stay in the middle of deep, utter pain when it is my experience. I think because, I, I think very much because I know it isn't going to last, so I can stay here for a while. You know, that there are sometimes experiences where you say, okay, hold on, this won't take long. And you know, you, it will be terrible, but it will be over. If you know it'll be over, you can stay there. I think there isn't anything but staying in the middle of deep, utter pain, which doesn't make it unpainful. I think what it does is it really uh, um, so hard to say this in a way that doesn't sound hokey, but it's true. I think it's what, in fact, makes us compassionate people. Sometimes people say, you know, I, I, I... I'm afraid to do this kind of practice. It will make me too vulnerable. I don't think there's such a thing as too vulnerable. 
I think that we are meant to be too vulnerable. What if the whole world got up tomorrow morning too vulnerable? What if everybody got up tomorrow absolutely concerned about the pain in the world? Everybody got up and thought about half the people in the world are going to go to sleep hungry tonight. Eighty percent of them will be not living in a sturdy enough dwelling to count on it to stand up or keep them warm enough or cool enough. The world is in a very difficult place. What if we all woke up tomorrow morning thinking that the whole world got up? We would do something different. We would share, starting tomorrow, we would have a whole new world if everybody did that. So there's no such thing as too vulnerable. I think we are meant to stop. I, I think we are meant really to see how dreadfully difficult it is to keep a heart content and satisfied, even if we were to suddenly end all of the greed and all of the anger and all of the delusion in the world, if it suddenly all disappeared, all of the things that, that really contribute to the fact that we are not sharing the resources of the world right and continuing to make wars, if we, if greed and hatred and delusion stopped, disappeared, we would still have old age, sickness, and death. And we would still have plenty to feel sad about. But we'd share. And we would hold each other's hands, I think, more in the old age and sickness and death. Which is really, when you come right down to it, the only thing that's left to do. Actually, or metaphorically, I think we're holding each other's hands all the time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.